So during the past two classes, uh, we've examined the origins of Baptist churches in 17th century England, and they're spread through the United States during the Great Awakening. And this week, we'll examine three pioneers of Baptist missionary history. We're going to look at William Carey, Adoniram Judson, uh, and Lottie Moon. And so as we do, I hope that we'll all see how faith-fueled obedience to Christ, despite suffering, is the chief mark of the Christian life and of the modern missions movement. Uh, A couple notes before we begin. Uh, So first, we're focusing on modern missions. So we're not looking at missions during the early church, Middle Ages, or the Reformation, but specifically uh, during the period between 1792 and 1910. Um, Also, we're not looking at all evangelistic work, but specifically at missions. So that is bringing the gospel across ethnic, linguistic, and cultural barriers to those who are otherwise unreached. So notice that distinction we're making between just strictly evangelism, which could be like to your family or friends, those who speak the same language, have the same culture, understand basically the same worldview, versus missions, which includes actually crossing some sort of cultural or linguistic barrier in order to share the gospel. And so we're examining this as a movement because it really has been a driving thrust of evangelical Christianity for the past 250 years. And it all started with a shoemaker named William Carey. So William Carey, you'll see in your notes, lived from 1761 to 1834. So William Carey is often called the father of the modern missions movement. Carey was born in England in 1761 with only a grammar school education. He worked as a cobbler, making and mending shoes, and while he was pastoring a Baptist church in Northamptonshire, Joel, do you know where that is? Yes, about an hour away. Okay, okay. So he's pastoring a Baptist church and also teaching at a school. Uh, he always kept a book next to him um, on his workbench while working, teaching himself Dutch, French, Latin, and several different Indo-European languages. Uh, As a young man, Carey recounts being fascinated by a biography of the explorer James Cook, which was published in 1788, and he was inspired by reading Jonathan Edwards' account of the life of the late Reverend David Brainerd. Uh, This detailed Brainerd's missionary efforts to reach the Native Americans in the New England colonies. And so, really though, through the study of scripture, Carey became convinced that Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right, the Great Commission, that that was binding on churches and Christians today, and it remained unfulfilled as long as there were people groups around the world that had never heard the gospel. So at that time, basically, it was very common for people to argue that the Great Commission, right, go and make disciples of all nations, that was only for the apostles. And Carey, through reading scripture, says, no, this is clearly for all Christians, And so in 1792, he published these thoughts on missions, along with a plan to reach the nations in his book entitled, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. 
It's a long book title, right? That was the thing back then. They loved really long book titles. No publisher would let you have that title today. <laughs> um, those two words are key, though. Notice he says, uh, obligation and means. So both the obligation for Christians to reach the heathens, and also he's explaining the means or how that that could be done or should be done. I shall inquire, he writes, whether the commissioned, whether the commission given by our Lord to his disciples be not still binding on us, right? Is it still applicable to us? Take a short view of former undertakings. Give some account of the present state of the world. Consider the practicability or practicality of doing something more that is done and the duty of Christians in general in this matter. Basically, he's saying, like, I'm going to try to understand, like, is the Great Commission still necessary for Christians to follow? And so he breaks this up into five different sections. In section one, he responds to several different objections against missionary efforts, including the idea that the need at home is too great to warrant efforts elsewhere. I wonder how many of you guys have heard that. Um, as an objection, oh, no, no, like, like we can't go to this other group of people. Like, there's so much need in our town, or there's so much need in, in our city. Like, why would you go across the world to share the gospel? We need to just share the gospel here. <clears throat> he writes, It has been objected that there are multitudes in our own nation and, with, uh, and within our immediate spheres of action who are as ignorant as the South Sea savages, and that therefore we have work enough at home without going into other countries. To this Kerry responds, and this is, he's writing from England, our own countrymen, those in England, have the means of grace and may attend on the word preached if they choose it. Basically, there's churches on every corner. They have the opportunity to go hear the gospel if they want to. They can go into a church and they can, they can hear the gospel they can partake of the Lord's Supper. They can be baptized. Um, they can hear the preaching of the word. They have the means of knowing the truth. And faithful ministers are placed in almost every part of the land whose spheres of action might be much extended if their congregation were but more hardy and active in this cause. But with them, the case is widely different. Those who are overseas, who are in these unreached areas. <clears throat> they have no Bible, no written language which many of them have not, no ministers, no good civil government, nor any of these advantages which we have. Pity, therefore, humanity and much more Christianity. Call loudly for every possible exertion to introduce the gospel amongst them. So really, he's making this distinction that there's places like England where even though there are plenty who don't know Jesus, they have the opportunity. There's the Bible written in their language. There's people who are there faithfully preaching the gospel. There's churches that are doing ministry. They could do more, but it exists, and so there's opportunity for them to have access. Whereas there's other parts of the world where there's no scripture in their language. There's no church there. There's no one faithfully witnessing the gospel. And in that case, there's not access. Um, how much more should we focus on that? or make sure that that is a priority for us as well. In section two, entitled, A Short Review of Former Undertakings for the Conversion of the Heathen. Once more, they're just hilarious titles. Hmm. 
basically, how have people tried to share the gospel in the past? <laughs> Carrie expounds past missionary efforts of the church, including Paul's missionary journey. In section three, uh, it contains a survey of the present state of the world in regard to the missionary task. This was a product of painstaking effort, including 23 tables of the world's countries, their land size, populations, and religious beliefs. So just a ton of data that he collected and compiled. This is really the first attempt to present a comprehensive overview of the state of world evangelization. Uh, like what Patrick Johnstone, for instance, has done with Operation World Today, if you're familiar with that. So all these things, Carrie writes, are loud calls to Christians, and especially to ministers, to exert themselves to the utmost in their several spheres of action and to try to enlarge them as much as possible. So he's encouraging everyone should be focused on trying to push towards reaching these unreached areas. In section four, he offers a plan for sending Christian missionaries, including practical and logistical necessities, such as language acquisition, right? We're talking about places where there's, the Bible's not in that language. It's crossing a, a culture or language, so you have to learn a language in order to do it. Financial support. Often when you're going to these places, right, it takes a lot of money as well, to, especially back then, to cross the seas and then to support yourself in this other context where you likely might not have opportunity for uh, a job or other livelihood while trying to do ministry. Um, as well as then focused on the moral character of missionaries. And then lastly in section five, Kerry examines the means that ought to be employed in missions including, first and foremost, fervent and united prayer. He writes, The most glorious works of grace that have ever taken place have been an answer to prayer. Kerry warns not to look at prayer as a small or insignificant part of world missions. He writes, Many can do nothing but pray. And prayer is perhaps the only thing in which Christians of all denominations can cordially and unreservedly unite. But in this, we may all be one. And in this, the strictest unanimity ought to prevail. So first prayer, second carry encourages the organization of a society for the purpose of sending and supporting missionaries. So this is really encouraging the start of what we know today as missions organizations. He says... I would therefore propose that such a society and committee should be formed amongst the particular Baptist denomination. In this case, Carrie's wanting there to be one among the denomination that he's a part of, the Baptists. So Carrie's book landed like a bombshell. It's safe to say that it changed the trajectory of Baptist history, and even of world history. Later that year, on October 2nd, 1792, a group of 14 Baptist ministers, including William Carey, John Ryland, Andrew Fuller, William Stoughton, and we'll talk about William Stoughton more later as well, formed the Particular Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Heathen, later renamed Baptist Missionary Society. Yep, those names. Uh, a year later then, in 1793, Carey basically does what his book says. He leaves England for India as the first missionary 
of the particular Baptist society for the propagation of the gospel amongst the heathen. How do you even say that in a sentence? Like, that just makes conversations difficult. <clears throat> he would never return home again. Very different than how we think about missions today where we're able to come home on furlough or go back and visit sending churches and stuff wherever we're from. He died in 1834 among the people he had given his life to reach with the gospel. In India, Carey preached, taught, and translated the Bible into Sanskrit. During his years in India, he translated the Bible into Bengali, Oriya, Marathi, Hindi, Assamese. Am I saying that right? What's that one? Assamese and Sanskrit, as well as completing partial translations into 29 other languages and dialects. Do you guys speak any of those? I'm guessing Hindi. Hindi, yeah. Hindi, any other? Anyone speak Bengali or Oriya? No. No? Oriya, you know? Wow. It's like similar to Hindi tone, but we can understand. Yeah. It's like similar, not different than Hindi. Yeah. Yeah, and so William Carey was the first one to do translation into those languages. Yeah, right? Isn't that amazing? During this whole time, Carey faced periods of depression and loneliness. He suffered the loss of his wife, Dorothy, and when he remarried, his second wife died as well. He buried three children on the field faced constant illness, and labored for seven years before seeing his first Indian convert baptized. Like, seven years, and no apparent fruit. Three years before his death, he wrote this letter to his son. I am this day 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness, Though on a review of my life, I find much, very much, for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted his cause, nor sought his glory and honor as I ought. Notwithstanding all this, I am spared until now, and am still retained in his work, and I trust I am received into the divine favor through him. Crazy to think someone like Carrie, who, you know, we just talked about all that translation work, like he left his home country at a time when like no one else had even considered this for the sake of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And he considers himself like, I've done like nothing. I've, he's so aware of his negligence in doing God's work and just his, his lack. Mm -hmm. Um, but he still, he says, I trust I'm received in the divine favor through him, through Christ. He's not trusting in his works. He's trusting in Christ's work. I wish to be more entirely devoted to his service, more completely sanctified, and more habitually exercising all the Christian graces and bringing forth the fruits of righteousness to the praise and honor of that Savior who gave his life a sacrifice for sin. Just Even after all that he's done, he sees his weakness, his failings, and his desperate need for the gospel and a desire to do more for God. When Carey died on June 9th, 1834, 
These simple words were inscribed on his tombstone. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. His son Eustace uh, recounted in his biography of his father. He once said to me, Eustace, if after my removal anyone should think it worth his while to write my life, I will give you a criterion by which you may judge of its correctness. If he gives me credit for being a plotter, do you guys know what that means? Just someone who just keeps on going. They, they don't do a lot. They just they do the simple things. They just keep on doing it. Just keep on working. If he gives me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond that will be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. Carey's strong Calvinistic beliefs did not stop his missionary zeal. Have you guys heard that? Sometimes people talk about uh, Calvinism, right? Saying that um, we're chosen by God, like those who are saved or are elected by him. And so it's only a work of God. It's like we can do nothing to save ourselves. Some will say that that is actually a, a hindrance to gospel proclamation. Because if that's true, then why don't we just sit back and just let God do it? But... We don't because scripture is so clear that we're to go and preach the gospel and that God uses us, um, uses the preaching of the word uh, to save those um, through his grace alone. But so for Kerry, like his Calvinistic beliefs also did not stop his missionary zeal. His life was spent for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And his life and writings inspired a generation of missionaries not only from England, but from the United States of America, which is where we're going to look next. So we'll now look at Adoniram Judson um, and also Luther Rice and the rise of American missions. Any questions on Carrie before we move on? Have you read any biographies about him that you'd recommend? Uh, I forget which one, what the main one was that I read. Um, I've also, I was actually just looking at it today. Uh, the other one that I've looked at, which is really helpful if you guys want just like an overview of all these. Um, there's a book called Jerusalem to Erie and Jaya. Mm. And it's a biographical history of missions. Mm. Um, so it's basically just biographies of different missionaries all the way through. Um, and so it's got short biographies of all these different uh, kind of key players. Is that the one, the brown ones? No, it's the one that's on my desk right now. It's, uh, yeah, it's kind, kind of black. Um, I-R-A-N. Like, Iran. Yeah. Iran. Yeah. Sorry, I-R-I-A-N and then Jaya. J-A-Y-A. Thanks. Yeah, it's a fantastic read, though. Good one for read aloud too, right? Mm. <clears throat> Any other questions? Like, uh, how do you respond about William Carey after seven years and seeing less food? Mm -hmm. Yeah, how do you think about that? Yeah. What's the application for us to, be, to think? I think in some ways it's so helpful. Like... It's, it's such a grace that he didn't go there and just have thousands of converts um, immediately. 
Because if he did, we'd be tempted to look at him and think that should be expected, or if we don't have that, we're doing it wrong. Um, but I think one of the key things, right, throughout Scripture, right, is you see that we're called to be faithful to, to preach, to plant seeds, to water, to do whatever part of the work that God calls us to, but we're not called to bring about growth. Only God can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, I think it's, it's one where William Carey, like during those first seven years, like his goal is faithfulness. Um, and he wants to be faithful to God's call in his life, to be preaching the gospel, to be laboring, um, pursuing Christ firstly for himself. And trusting that God will bring whatever fruit God wants to bring in whatever time God wants to bring it. Mm. So I think it's really helpful because I think often, you know, like, you might go back to Nepal, right? And you might just do everything you possibly can to try to encourage the church there to uh, help them to understand the gospel more fully. And you might see no one, like, grow Uh, And that doesn't mean necessarily that God's not with you, that you're not being faithful, that you're doing something wrong. It might just be that God's timing is different than yours. Mm -hmm. And so it's just how can we be faithful day by day and trust God for everything else? Mm -hmm. Is that answering your question? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's a grace that... We see people like this, and we, we hold them up as examples to follow, even when, like, there's not necessarily lots of fruit that is visible to us. But we don't know. We'll, we'll understand more fully in eternity. Um, it also makes me think about his emphasis on prayer, like, no glorious works of grace ever took place, mm-hmm. apart from the answer to prayer. Yeah. So, praying that God would bear fruit. Yeah. And do what he, what only he can do. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> so if William Carey is the father of the modern missions movement, Adoniram Judson is the father of the American Baptist missionary movement. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now we want to be clear. Missionary work has already been going on for a long time in the United States. So you've got different guys like John Eliot, who lived from 1604 to 1690, who was a Puritan missionary to the Native American Indians in Massachusetts in the 17th century. Likewise, remember we talked about David Brainerd, like, whose biography inspired William Carey to pursue mm-hmm. missions. Mm-hmm. He served as a missionary to the Delaware Indians of New Jersey in the 18th century. Um, David Brainerd, his biography by Jonathan Edwards is... Really interesting. It's kind of hard to read because it's Puritan, so it's old language. Um, but David Brainerd was just someone who had such a hard time, um, mm-hmm. but was just faithful in the midst of that. Uh, you've also got guys like George Lyle, uh, 1750, 1820. So he was a former slave who brought the gospel to Jamaica, planting the East Queen Street Baptist Church in Kingstown where over the course of eight years, he baptized 500 persons and sent out missionaries to uh, Georgia, the state, or back then the colony in the U.S., uh, Nova Scotia, and Sierra Leone. Um, so very interesting stuff there as well. So there's plenty of missionary work going on, 
Uh, in fact, you could say that the whole of the Americas was considered a missionary territory at that time. So, but the difference was twofold. So first, the missionary, those missionary efforts lacked a formal organizational structure. Um, so there was no like, organization set up to help with the sending or maintaining those who were going to these different fields. Uh, and then second, this was largely domestic focused. Um, so on reaching indigenous peoples of the Americas or enslaved Africans or European settlers. So it was focused on just kind of this one area and not as much cross-cultural uh, work going on. It wasn't globally focused. So through William Carey, an awareness of the gospel neediness of vast regions on their side of the world captured the American evangelical conscience in the early 1800s. And this led to the organization of the missionary structures and partnerships that are still with us today. So at the forefront of some of those endeavors was a man by the name of Adoniram Judson. <clears throat> so <clears throat> Judson was born August 9th, 1788 in Malden, Massachusetts to Adoniram Judson Sr., who was a congregational minister. He was raised in a godly and pious home, and Judson was a brilliant young man. He entered Brown University um, today. It's still one of the Ivy Leagues at 17. Uh, however, in college, he abandoned his godly roots and embraced skepticism and deism under the influence of his close friend, Jacob Eames. Have you guys heard of deism before? So deism admits the existence of God. So it says, yeah, there is a God, but it denies that he's revealed himself in scripture and thereby ignores basically every doctrine that we hold onto so dearly. Um, so pay attention. Jacob Eames was the one who kind of led him down this road of skepticism and deism. Judson graduated as the valedictorian of his class, so very top of his class, and he returned home to teach. All the while, he kept his rejection of Christianity a secret from his family. Eventually, though, he found his father's preaching and their family religion oppressive to his skepticism. Just couldn't handle it. And so he resolved on his 20th birthday to travel to New York City and take up a life on the stage, maybe become a writer. Um, so at the time, New York City was known as the pit of immorality. And so when he told his parents his plans to leave, they just couldn't, they couldn't believe it. They're like, how could he do that? And so they pressed him on his calling, on his devotion. Lord, remember, they think he's still a Christian. And he suddenly explodes. He denounces his parents' faith as wishful thinking and foolish mysticism. He's, remember, he's really, really smart. He quickly uh, overpowers his father's best arguments and smugly just, like, moves on. Leaves behind his weeping mother and broken father. Judson quite literally demanded his inheritance um, in the form of a horse and set out for New York City. There, however, all his hopes of worldly glory and sensuality came to nothing. After months of trying to make his way, not altogether unlike the prodigal son, he resolved to return home. On the way home from New York City, Judson entered an inn 
only to learn that the only room available was next to the room of a dying man. The innkeeper warned him that it might make for an unpleasant night. No, said Judson, committed to this philosophical stoicism. Nothing matters. It doesn't matter. Disregards death. He says, a few sounds next door won't deny me a night's rest. What does it matter? But all night long, he tossed and turned, unable to sleep, next to the low voices, footsteps, coming and going, cries and wails of a dying man. Eventually, he falls asleep, and he wakes as if a new man. He chuckles to himself at his weakness from the night before. As he settled the bill with the innkeeper, he was surprised to hear from the manager that the man next to him had died. Dead? Judson asked him. Did you know him? Did you know who he was? Oh, yes, the manager replied. He was a young man from the college in Providence. Name was Eames, Jacob Eames. Same guy that let him down, deism. Deeply shaken, Judson returned home, renounced his deism, and from that point onward, his whole life changed. He enrolled in Andover Theological Seminary, uh, receiving a special allowance to enter as an unbeliever. (laughs) Uh, And then during his first semester, he was converted. In his second year of seminary, Judson became aware of the need for world missions. He read about William Carey, who had brought the gospel to Sarampore, India, and begun translating the Bible into Bengali. And so as he studied geography in the nations of the East, Judson soon resolved to become a missionary to the kingdom of Burma. What are we calling it today? Is it, is it still Burma or Myanmar? Or we keep on switching Myanmar now? Okay. <laughs> Uh, which at the time was a completely unreached Buddhist country. So the next few years were busy for Judson. He graduated seminary, married a young woman, and Nancy, and along with several other students, including Luther Rice, remember that name, organized the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. They just don't like short names. This was the first organization in the United States committed to sending missionaries around the world. Um, a quick aside, he, when he's um, proposing to marry Anne or Nancy, he wrote this letter um, to her father asking permission. Listen to this. He says, remember, he's already thinking he wants to go overseas for missions. He writes, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean. Remember, they're traveling by ship for months Mm. to get to these places. To the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you. For the sake of perishing immortal souls. For the sake of Zion and the glory of God. 
Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? can't imagine as a father receiving that kind of letter. But fully understanding what he's stepping into, the, the cost he might uh, be paying and also be asking um, his wife and, all, and her family to pay for the sake of the gospel mm-hmm. among the nations. On February 19, 1812, Judson set sail aboard the caravan, name of the ship, uh, with his wife Ann Judson, Luther Rice, and Samuel and Harriet Newell. Their plan was to travel to Serampore, unite with William Carey, and go from there to establish a mission in Rangoon, Burma. Uh, on the boat to India, however, this is kind of funny, mm. uh, Judson began to wrestle with the issue of baptism. See, at the time they were Congregationalists, like us and Jonathan Edwards, but they practiced infant baptism. So they baptized kids when they're um, ba- just babies. And so Judson knew, though, that he would be soon meeting William Carey, who was already a Baptist. And so <clears throat> this legendary Baptist, famed for his knowledge of Scripture, Judson began to investigate Scripture with regard to the question of baptism. He wants to understand, like... Mm-hmm. And guess what happened? The Judson became a Baptist while on the boat. <laughs> so did Luther Rice, who was on the same boat as Adoniram and his wife Anne. But the other missionaries were on a separate boat. <laughs> so upon their arrival some months later, there was the awkward realization that they could no longer work together because they had a different understanding of baptism, which would be key to how they're fulfilling or building churches. <laughs> mm. So as a result, Luther Rice, who was on the boat with Adoniram, was sent home to raise funds for the Judson's mission, but this time from Baptist churches in America. Uh, And this ended up leading to the founding of the first National Baptist Organization. So uh, a national organization of Baptists, not just their small local organizations, and what's known as the Triennial Convention. And so we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Uh, Arriving in Burma on July 13, 1813, the Judsons spent the next 10 years learning the language and sharing the gospel. During this time, Judson began developing a grammar and dictionary of the Burmese language, different language tools in the local language. And he started translating the New Testament. He shared the gospel widely and printed and distributed thousands of tracts. He began to hold public discourses. He was following the style of the Burmese religious teachers, sitting on the ground in an open tent, and inviting passerbys to stop and have a conversation. On June June 27, 1819, this was six years into his ministry, he baptized his first convert. By 1822, he could count 18 converts after 10 years. In In 1824, everything changed. A war broke out between Great Britain and Burma, And Judson was suspected of being a British spy by the Burmese government. They couldn't tell the difference between Brits and Americans. 
Hmm. On June 8, 1824, Judson was thrown into what was called a death prison. It was a hut with no ventilation where over 50 prisoners of both sexes were bound in fetters and kept Hmm. in horrible conditions. At night, their feet were tied to bamboo shafts and lifted off the ground so that only their shoulders remained on the ground in order to prevent them from escaping. They were fed only scraps of rice, and amidst illness, beatings, and cruel treatment, Judson began to die. Meanwhile, his wife Anne did her best to secure his release, trying every relationship, every friendship, even personally appealing to the queen and king. But there was something else. Anne was pregnant. On January 26, 1825, Maria Elizabeth Buttersworth Judson (laughs) was born. Buttersworth, yeah. What would it have been like for Judson in fetters to see his wife approach the fence prison carrying his baby girl in her arms? As time wore on, the war worsened. The economic effects began to be felt by the Burmese. Food prices rose to crazy prices. One day, his wife came to the prison with her baby and told Adoniram that she had no more food. Moreover, smallpox and various illnesses were going around. And as Judson languished in prison, Anne began to succumb to illness. That's when Adoniram got news that Anne was dying. And taking pity on him, the prison warden allowed Judson to leave, still in shackles and under guard, to take his baby daughter Maria around the village, begging mothers to have compassion and nurse the little girl. Driven nearly mad from suffering, Judson struggled to make sense of it all. His daughter was starving before his eyes. His wife was nearly dead, his translation was lost, and he seemed marked for death. But somehow, God sustained Judson's faith. And miraculously, baby Maria held on to life. And eventually, Anne, too, began to recover. How much of what sustained the Judsons through those dark days was due to the prayers of believers thousands of miles away, who, although they would not have known the particulars, knew the Lord and knew that he would answer their prayers. Finally, on December 31st, 1825, Judson was released from prison. He'd been in prison since June 1824, over a year and a half. For the next 25 years, Judson labored tirelessly in Burma. Tragically, while Anne survived his imprisonment, she soon succumbed to spinal meningitis and died less than a year after his release. His daughter Maria followed her mother less than a year after. She was two years and three months old. Before her death, Anne had written a book entitled A Particular Relation of the American Baptist Mission to the Burman Empire. They really can't do short titles. (laughs) This was published in Washington, D.C. in 1823 by a publishing company called Mission Press, which was started by Luther Rice. Remember, the guy that went over also became a Baptist and got sent back in order to raise money for Judson's mission. 
Luther Rice had started this for the sake of bringing this uh, mission press, for the start of bringing attention to world missions. Shortly after Anne's death in 1829, James Knowles wrote the memoir of Mrs. Anne H. Hudson, late missionary to Burma. Together, these two books, the one written by Anne and the memoirs of her, went through hundreds of printings and were bestsellers in America, inspiring thousands to give themselves to the missionary cause. And so as fruitful as the Judson's work abroad, you can speculate, it could be argued that foreign missions had an even greater impact in saving souls in America as thousands of men and women read the stories about Ann Judson, vowing to follow in her footsteps, and in Judson's footsteps. <clears throat> so Luther Rice and the organization of the Triangle Convention. Any other questions about Adoniram Judson's time overseas? Just a comment, they, uh, there's an excellent very long, extensive, detailed biography of the of their ministry in Burma called To the Golden Shore. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And it's just, I mean, obviously the story is incredibly powerful, but it's amazing, really, really worth yeah. the investment of time. It will take a long time. It's like a thousand pages or almost like that, something mm -hmm. like that. What kind of fruit did they see in that time, like in... in their ministry. But Over the entire the, period. I mean, you mentioned the one in, in America, how it impacted people, but. Um, I saw people like come to know the Lord in Burma. Well, what, what I had read there was that he had his first convert after six years. Oh, yeah. Um, there were 18 converts after 10 years. Okay. And I forget over the course of the rest of his ministry how much there was. Mm -hmm. Are you aware, Mark? I believe that it was eventually quite fruitful. So the numbers of people who professed faith and to evaluate how accurate those numbers are in terms of true, true conversion, I'm not sure, but I think that Burma, after his ministry, after decades, many, many people would profess faith in Christ. I believe that's right. I'm not 100 percent sure. And his his translation of the Bible also lasted a long, long time. Mm -hmm. um, like maybe even they're still kind of used today. That's impressive. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> All right. So Luther Rice and the organization of the Triangle Convention. So remember, Luther Rice heads over with the Judsons on a boat. He and the Judsons become Baptists on the boat. As a result, he goes back to raise money from Baptist churches to support the mission. <clears throat> so about 100 years ago, um, there's a Baptist historian, William Allen Wilbur, and he recounts visiting the First Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And he pulls from its library an old book entitled A Particular Relation of the American Baptist Mission to the Burman, Burman Empire. Remember who wrote that book? Huh? Yeah, Ann Judson. And upon opening the front cover, he finds this inscription written by hand to the wife of the pastor of that church. Mrs. Brown, affectionately presented by A.H. Judson, April 16, 1823. So this is just one illustration of how close of a relationship there was 
between the Judsons and the churches back home that were supporting them. And really this through the influence of Luther Rice, the Judsons' one-time missionary partner turned Baptist fundraiser and organizer. So after returning from Burma, he settled in Washington, D.C., where he was a member of the First Baptist Church. And he worked tirelessly to raise funds and awareness for missions. Uh, in 1814, along with William Stoughton, remember he was with William Carey in the UK, or in England, helping to set up the first missionary society over there. They organized what's known as the Triennial Convention. <clears throat> and so called the Triennial Convention because it would meet every three years, so try. So at that time, Baptists had been organized more regionally into local associations, but starting the Triennial Convention reflected the first attempt to organize Baptists on a national scale. Its ultimate purpose was to spread evangelistic light through dark regions of the world. But its more immediate purpose, right, was to raise funds for the Judsons in Burma. Rice and the other Baptists soon realized that if missionaries were to be successful, rigorous education opportunities should, would need to be made available to prospective missionaries. It's one where it's a really hard thing, especially back then, to go across a culture, right? In all these cases thus far, we're talking about learning a new language, translating it, like having to understand different cultures. And this is before, like, you would have any awareness, really, of what this culture is like before getting there. It's a big deal. It's hard. And so they, <clears throat> so in 1817, the Triennial Convention selected William Stoughton to organize a theological school in Philadelphia for the purpose of providing a classical style education for prospective pastors and missionaries. If missionaries were to develop dictionaries and grammars and translate the Hebrew and Greek scriptures into indigenous languages, they would need a thoroughly classical education. So a classical education has a focus on these old languages, on learning different languages, understanding how to read well and translate. And so it's really helpful for this. In the fall of 1821, through the influence of Rice, the school moved to Washington, D.C. and was renamed Columbian College. And today, it's now George Washington University. Kind of strange. George Washington University is... Secular. Completely secular now. Hmm. Just crazy to think about the roots of that. Hmm. Hmm. Um, as a result of the goals of this university, the requirements to enter included, among other things, the ability to translate correctly and with facility Caesar's commentaries, Virgil, Sallust, I don't even know who that is, Cicero's select orations, and of course, from Latin, and the Gospels from Greek. Students, so they've got to do just a ton of translation work. Like, mm. just crazy. I mean, how much translation do you have to do in, in university work? Um, required? Very little. Very little. I took... You didn't I have to translate the Gospels? No. Maybe John? Uh, maybe, no. part of, maybe first John. Yeah. No, even that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like... My for, like my intro classes yeah. was required maybe several verses, not even yeah. a chapter. Yeah. <clears throat> Pretty intense. 
The students organized a missionary society whose members would then go out two by two on Sunday to preach at the preparatory school of the college um, and at poor houses and churches in the city. Moreover, Luther Rice opened, remember we talked about this, Mission Press, which published numerous books and periodicals, including the Latter-day Luminary, which was a monthly publication edited by William Stoughton, and as has been mentioned, of course, Ann Judson's best-selling, A Particular Relation of the American Baptist Mission to the Burman Empire. Just flows off your tongue. So in short, though, right, Luther Rice's story shows how God uses people differently for the growth of the church and the cause of missions. In the Great Commission, there are stayers like Rice and there are goers like Judson. These are not different classes with separate worth. They're both critical to the advancement of the gospel all over the world. Before William Carey went to India, he famously told Andrew Fuller, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the ropes. As Fuller held the ropes for Carey, Rice held the ropes for Judson. Any questions before we move on to Lottie Moon? encouraging stories of faithfulness it just reminds me of how how powerful missionary biographies can be and mm-hmm. we often can think of like oh I need to read more theology but like I think I've been really blessed by reading biography yeah you know? um, in university um, the program I was a part of gave you the option to uh, at times create your own class so you could like propose it to your professor and then if they thought it was of worth uh, you could do that and so I proposed um, a class where all I would do was just read um, Christian biographies a lot of missionary biographies but some other ones as well Um, and then I would just write a a blog post about each one of them Um, and so I got to read like maybe like I think it was like six or eight different biographies that semester as part of this course that I had designed Um, uh, Are these blog posts available online? I I don't think they are anymore. I've I've tried to find it, and I I can't. I think it it was like on Blogspot. But I I named the the blog, I called it A Cleansing Rain. Um, And so my first semester, I went to college in California, right, in L.A. And L.A. is known for having smog, right, having pollution. And so it was about six months after being there that all of a sudden I was and walked out one morning, and I, I looked out my, the balcony from my dorm, and I could see the mountains. And I was like, I didn't know that you could see mountains from here. Like, I was coming from Alaska, and like, I love mountains. And after like six months of being at school, I finally saw mountains. Mm-hmm. And then I remembered, oh, it rained last night. Mm-hmm. Now the air is actually clear enough mm-hmm. to see the mountains. And so I think that's kind of how, like, these... Faithful Christian biographies um, can act in our lives as well. They can be a cleansing rain mm-hmm. that helps us to have a clearer perspective 
of what really matters um, and can keep us focused on, on eternity and living a life that is worth it for the glory of God. Mm. So Lottie Moon. <clears throat> Lottie Moon was born on December 12th, 1840 in Virginia, part of the pre-Civil War Southern aristocracy. Though she would only stand four feet and three inches tall as an adult woman. Whoa. She was so short. Very tiny. She became... like big mountains. Yeah. <laughs> she became a mighty missionary, spending 39 years serving in China. As a child, her mother read the scriptures to her, as well as other Christian biographies, such as The Life of Ann Judson. At age 14, she began to attend the Abermarley Female Institute. The story goes that this Baptist school for young ladies was opened after the Presbyterian school refused to release its young Baptist ladies for Baptist services on Sunday mornings. little interdenominational conflict. <clears throat> By the end of her education, she knew Latin, Greek, French, Italian, and Spanish. What do they teach in schools these days? Not that. <laughs> right, come on. <clears throat> While attending first, the First Baptist Church of Charlottesville, she was converted under the preaching of John A. Broadus at the age of 18. Through Broadus's encouragement, she began to pursue the life of a missionary. In those days, it was completely unheard of for a single woman to be sent out as a missionary. But... On July 7, 1873, the Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, now known as the IMB, appointed Lottie to go to Tengchao, China, basically just right in the middle of China. In China, Lottie's passion was direct evangelism. She thought that women would best reach women in this task, and therefore they should not be tied down to the petty work of teaching a few girls in school. In 1878, she opened a girls' boarding school. During that time, she opposed the widespread practice of foot binding and helped save about a third of her pupils from that inhumane practice. Are you guys familiar with that? Mm-hmm. Right. In, in China, it used to be that um, for young girls, like when they're just babies, they would start to bind their feet Um, extremely tightly in cloth so that their feet could not grow properly and they would become deformed. But because they had this idea that small feet were beautiful, even though it meant that those women then could barely walk as a result of having these deformed feet. Really sad. She learned local dialects and traveled extensively throughout China, visiting hundreds of villages, sharing the gospel as she went She wrote hundreds of letters back to the United States, raising awareness of the need for more missionaries. On November 1st, 1873, she wrote, What we need in China is more workers. The harvest is very great. The laborers, oh, so few. Why does the Southern Baptist Church lag behind in this great work? I think your idea is correct that a young man should ask himself, not if it is a, sorry, pay attention to this. She says, I think your idea is correct, that a young man should ask himself, not if it is his duty to go to the heathen, but if he may dare stay at home. The command is so plain, go. 
Right? She's saying the Great Commission says, go and make disciples. Like, why are we asking ourselves, is God calling us to go? The command's already given. Ask, is God calling you to stay? Mm. Although the soil was rough and she often saw little fruit, Lottie recognized that she was sowing seeds of the gospel that one day might blossom and grow into mighty oaks of the Lord. Mm. On November 4th, 1875, she wrote, What we find missionaries can do in the way of preaching the gospel, even in the immediate neighborhood of this city, is but as the, the thousandth part of a drop in the bucket compared with what should be done. I do not pretend to say that there is any spiritual interest among the people. Doesn't seem like there's much fruit even, right? They literally sit in darkness and the shadow of death. The burden of our words to them is the folly and sin of idol worship. We are but doing pioneer work, breaking up the soil in which we believe others shall sow a bountiful crop. But as in the natural soil, four or five laborers cannot possibly cultivate a radius of 20 miles, so cannot we, a mission of five people, do more than make a beginning of what should be done. Mm -hmm. She basically sees there is just so many people here. It's such a vast land. And even though they're not having much fruit, she just sees like, we're just doing the basic work. We're starting to, to basically soften the ground so that hopefully God will send more to sow seeds and eventually fruit will come. Mm -hmm. But there's just too much work. There's too many people. She can't share. There's only five people in this massive land trying to do this work. Lottie bore many sacrifices in the way, like in the process of her missionary time. One of those was the fact that she never married. Asked once by a niece, Aunt Lottie, have you ever been in love? She answered, yes, but God had first claim on my life. And since the two conflicted, there could be no question about the result. Lottie Moon died at age 72 on a ship off the coast of Japan. She had been gravely ill leading up to her death and weighed only 50 pounds. But in the year of her death, 2,358 persons were baptized in the area where she had been working, nearly doubling the current Baptist population in that area of China. Today, on any given Sunday, there are now more Protestants in church in China than in all of Europe. In fact, even according to the most conservative estimates, more than one million Chinese people convert to Christianity every year. How much of the fruit of Christianity in China is due to the prayerful labors of missionaries like Lottie Moon? Additionally, uh, in the States, there's an annual Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Um, so in memory of her, every year there's an offering at Christmas um, to raise money and awareness for missions throughout the world. And over the course that it's been around, there's been over $3 billion raised um, go, that has gone towards foreign missions in honor of Lottie Moon. <clears throat> so as evangelicals, following in the footsteps of William Carey, Adoniram Judson, and Lottie Moon, we can understand that the responsibility of the Great Commission falls on us. And so that means that all of us are called to support missions. 
For some of us, that means giving, sending, and praying. And for others of us, that means going. But to to paraphrase Lottie Moon, the default stance of the Christian should not be, should I go, but rather, should I stay? So many people build their lives around maximizing comfort and minimizing pain. Mm -hmm. Carrie, Judson, and Moon didn't live that way. They didn't enjoy suffering, but they did endure suffering because they were looking to the reward. May that be true of us as well. Mark, would you close us in prayer? Sure. Um, can I ask one question? We'll get, we'll get to questions in just a second. I'll, I'll just pray. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for these testimonies, Lord, of these brothers and sisters who were so committed to the gospel and so zealous for your glory among different peoples, people different from them, as they remembered that Jesus left his home to come to rescue us by taking on flesh and living here among us and dying the death that we deserve for our sin and rising uh, triumphant from the grave to have victory over sin and death and Satan. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have the same kind of zeal and commitment to your name being spread and shared. Lord, we pray that we would endure when there's pain and sorrow and suffering in the midst of seeking to be faithful, Lord. We pray that we would um, entrust you the, the fruit of our labors, but that we would remain faithful, that we would be bold with the gospel, that we would share it, that we would spread seed wide and far. And Lord, as a church, that we would continue to try to seek to raise up um, people to go to places that have no church and among peoples where there are very few Christians, Lord. Help our efforts as we partner in different ways and as we seek to um, equip the members of Covenant Hope to be prepared when they leave this place. Lord, would you give us wisdom? Would you help us to be um, faithful? And Lord, we pray that you would use it for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.